you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. One of the scientific pursuits with which men have been fascinated ever since the early Middle Ages is the development of a perpetual motion machine, a machine that would use natural forces to move itself unceasingly. Essentially think of, for example, the little rack of hanging ball bearings that you often see on people's desks. Once you release the bearings, the bearings essentially pendulum back and forth. But this will of course eventually run out of potential energy, it'll slow, and then it'll finally stop. A perpetual motion machine, on the other hand, would just keep going and going. It would generate its own energy to sustain itself, and entropy would never really take hold. For almost as long as there have been scientists, there have been attempts at these machines. Probably the earliest one known is that developed sometime around 1150 by the Indian mathematician Biscara. His wheel was one to which jointed arms were attached and at the ends of these arms was a vial of mercury. As the wheel turned, the jointed arms would move, and the levels of the liquid mercury within the vials would change, distributing the weight of the liquid metal differently, and generating the energy needed to move the wheel around. Biscara's invention is what is termed an overbalanced wheel. Most of the perpetual motion devices developed in the years since were variations on Biscara's device. In 1230, a similar wheel device was designed by Frenchman Villard de Honecourt. In principle, it was exactly the same, except the weights were hammers affixed to the jointed arms, rather than vials of fluids. Leonardo da Vinci sketched several designs for perpetual motion machines, mostly variations on the overbalanced wheels, but it seems that he concluded that they wouldn't work, and as far as it's known, he never actually built any. The 16 and 1700s were a heyday of, of experimentation with the devices. An unusual sort of perpetual motion machine was built in 1610 by Dutch engineer Cornelis Drebbel. Though called a perpetual motion machine, it really isn't, as it does still rely on an outside power source. Developed for the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, his machine was a sort of self-winding clock. A regular clock was built, with potential energy being stored in the mainspring not by winding, like other clocks, but by pressure exerted on the spring by a volume of water, which in turn was acted on by air pressure. A similar design was used in the construction of Cox's timepiece, still on display at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. 
Another hydraulic sort of perpetual motion machine was built and investigated by Robert Flood in about 1613. He built a recirculating mill, similar to one that had been designed by da Vinci a century before. Essentially, water pouring from an elevated trough would pour onto a conventional mill wheel, turning it and depositing the water in another trough below. The water from this trough would be carried on an Archimedes screw, a device used to carry water up an incline, to be deposited in the first trough. Thereby, the same water used to power the wheel would be recycled endlessly. Once again, the concept of the recirculating mill was modified and revisited several times, but always with the same net result. Though the machine would seem to work on paper, and sometimes did for quite some time, eventually the Archimedes screw would run out of power, and once this ran out of power, the entire machine ceased to work. The most famous, though, was developed in the early 1700s. In 1712, inhabitants of Gera, a town in eastern Germany near Leipzig, were fascinated by a machine displayed in town. The machine in question was a circular strip of wood three feet in diameter and four inches wide. The wheel was then covered with canvas to conceal the exact mechanisms working within. The machine, its inventor claimed, turned under its own power, and the power generated was substantial enough to lift a weight connected to it by a system of ropes and pulleys. The machine made a clicking sound as it rotated. Its inventor was a man who went by the name of Orpherius. Johann Ernst Elias Bessler, for this was Orpherius's true name, was born somewhere in the vicinity of Zittau in Germany, and the extreme eastern corner wedged between the borders of Germany, Poland, and the Czech Republic. Of his early life, that is, before the invention of his wheel, only a little bit is known. He was educated in Zittau, and it was noted that he excelled in his studies. After leaving school, he traveled around that section of Germany for a while. At one point, he accompanied a traveler to Italy, where, in a monastery, he saw a self-turning spit on which the monks cooked food. Eventually, eventually, he settled down and became a watchmaker's apprentice, also working as a doctor, albeit one with no formal medical training. He married a daughter of Dr. Christian Schumann, who in addition to being a physician, was the mayor of the town of Annaberg, now Annaberg Buchholz. The name by which Bessler is better known was derived at some point after he had begun working at a do- as a doctor. He used a simple substitution cipher in which each letter is substituted with the 13th letter following it. Nowadays, this is called a Rot 13 cipher. He did this on his surname to get the word Orphir. He then Latinized this and came up with Orphirius. Back to Gera, 1712. Of the many, many people who viewed Orpherius' invention, the majority of them were very skeptical of it, though their reasons varied. Some, of course, said that the machine was an impossibility and an outright fake, and that there was actually a clockwork or some other device moving the wheel. Others thought that while the machine might have worked as it was, a larger model of it wouldn't have quite the same functionality. One of his chief detractors was a man named Andreas Gertner, a clockmaker working for King Augustus II of Poland. Gertner called Orpherius a charlatan and a thief, and refused to believe that the wheel worked as Orpherius said. He was quick to point out the covering on the hollow wheel, saying it concealed some hidden mechanism which turned the wheel, 
and that it was not all just a matter of weight distribution, as Orpherius was claiming. Also critical of Orpherius's wheel was famed engineer Johann Gottfried Borlaug, who believed that the wheel was powered by an external spring, making it likely a clockwork of some sort, which would be unsurprising, as he had been trained as an apprentice watchmaker. Another was mathematician Christian Wagner, who was perhaps even less charitable than either of the others. He was certain that perpetual motion was an impossibility, and refused to even examine the device. Orpherius asked some of the local nobility to examine the wheel, and to be fair, a commission of investigators was assembled. Orpherius, however, refused to remove the covering on the wheel even for these people, and demanded that the investigators pay him $100,000 to get him to do so. This is equivalent to about $2.5 million in today's money. Though they did not pay, unsurprisingly, and never got to examine the internal workings of the machine, nonetheless, they declared that the long-sought-after and desired perpetual mobile has been invented and constructed recently, through God's grace, here in Gera. It is a unique and highly useful machine that rotates without any weights, wind, water, or spring mechanisms. It has its own modus perpetuum that not only maintains, moves, and turns it around continuously, but it is also able to easily drive other machines for which a great force is necessary, such as waterworks and mills. The machine was first constructed by Mr. Orpherius here and put in into its remarkable speedy rotation on the 6th of June in the current year 1712. It was shown several times to Her Grace the Dowager Countess and His Grace the Count in person, and also, by their gracious consent and agreement, Everything was shown and made available to us. Now we have undersigned this testimonial and confirmation of the above, and to attest to the fame and honor of the inventor, and for his special protection, benefit, recommendation, and promotion. But after this decree was issued, in 1714, Orpherius, who would be noted in the years following as an extremely un- unpredictable and impetuous man, destroyed his wheel and moved on to the town of Droschwitz. Here, as if to prove some of the other Gera detractors wrong, he built a larger copy of it. This time, the wheel was almost five feet in diameter and six inches thick. Orpherius tried several times, once again, to sell the secret of his machine for a hundred thousand dollars. While the two most ardent admirers of the wheel, a priest named Bukta and mathematician Gottfried Teuber, weren't going to pay, Teuber contacted a friend of his who was none other than Gottfried Leibniz, who was, of course, engaged in a feud of sorts with Sir Isaac Newton. Teuber described the working of the wheel that he had seen. It is covered by thin wooden planks in order to hide the internal mechanism. The axle is also wooden and extends one foot beyond the wheel. It has three teeth which are for moving three wooden stamps similar to those used in pounding mills. The stamps are quite heavy, and are lifted and dropped continuously. The iron journals move in open bearings so as to show that neither deception nor an external energy supply are necessary to the machine's motion. Having made an appointment with the inventor, we approached the machine and noticed that it was secured by a cord to the rim of the wheel. Upon the cord being released, the machine began to rotate with great force and noise, maintaining its speed without increasing or decreasing for some considerable time. To stop the wheel and retie the cords required tremendous effort. 
Leibniz answered, I cannot believe that someone has invented perpetual motion. In my opinion, it is contrary to nature's laws. I suspect that what you saw in the wheel was the action of highly compressed air. However, it would need to be recompressed after a short time. If the machine were able to show continuous movement for 24 hours whilst under lock and seal, or in the presence of witnesses could maintain its motion for 24 hours without any additional input of energy, and if it could still apply great force, for example lifting heavy stamps, it might be very interesting. But even then, the motion might not be purely mechanical, but rather physical. Leibniz's efforts to procure patronage for Orpheus, or indeed interest in his wheel, failed to pay off. In 1714, Orpheus once again destroyed his wheel, and again he moved on, this time to the city of Merseburg. The Merseburg wheel, which he began to exhibit in January 1715 at his home, was designed so that it could move itself in either direction, done to disprove Borlock's assertion that the wheel was powered by a spring. It was also far larger than its predecessor in Droschwitz, being nearly seven feet in diameter and a foot in thickness. The wheel was suspended between two pillars, and Johann Borlock issued a new statement upon seeing the sketches of the Merseburg wheel. It would have been fairly easy to implement some trickery in which the wheel was manually turned. He issued a drawing to show how this was possible. Essentially, a person in an adjoining room could turn a crank, connected by a pulley system to a jointed arm above, with another cable traveling down one of the columns to which the wheel's axis was affixed. Thereby, the person's turning of the crank would actually turn the axle of the wheel. A wheel that moved in two directions wouldn't disprove a hoax in his view, but only make it necessary for it to be a different type of hoax, since if the person turned the crank in the opposite direction, the axle would move in a different direction, as would the wheel. After exhibiting the wheel only a short time, a commission formed by the Duke of Saxe Zeitz went to Orpheus's home to investigate the wheel. This they did on October 31st, 1715. One of the first things the commission did was to have Orpheus move the wheel and affix it to a different column, probably meant to dispel Borlock's latest criticism. Orpheus, in the presence of all, lifted the machine described above from its original wooden support. The timber posts were carefully examined from both top and bottom, as well as in the middle, particularly where a small cut was noticed. The same careful examination was devoted to the trunnions, the shaft, and the bearings. During the investigation, not the slightest indication of imposture or deceit was found. Rather, everything was found to be right, complete, and without fault. As further proof of its internal or inherent motive power, the machine was translocated to another support in such a way that the trunnions on both sides of the axle were laid uncovered in the open sockets. The whole assembly could see over and under, and both sides of the machine, and all present were invited to inspect the bearings, but no holes were found. All present examined them with their eyes, but no sign of fraud was seen. It was possible to translocate the machine and turn it left and right as many times as was asked by the respectable commission. The machine regained its strong, fast, even rotation each time. The movement was accompanied by quite a loud noise, that lasted until the machine was brought to a forced stop. Thus, nothing suspicious happened. Finally, it should be noted that right at the start, before the machine was subject to any testing, 
All rooms above, below, and on either side were examined by the commission. It was also verified that the stamps were not hollow, and no indication of any mechanism moved by a cord was found. All that has been written above is the truth, and has been acknowledged by signatures in our own hand without any reservations. One member of the commission was the priest Bukta, who had examined the wheel in Droschwitz. He once more wrote to Gottfried Leibniz, as did Christian Wolff, a mathematician and devotee of Leibniz, who provided some specific information. When Orpherius exhibited the extraordinary machine which he had built, in order to refute the malicious rumors being spread that it was fraudulent, I deliberately attended myself. The mechanic Gertner, in particular, who is so famous for his many celebrated mechanical inventions, has distributed in public a copper engraving on which there is a slanderous picture showing how Orpherius's machine is moved by means of a cord from an adjoining room. We have demonstrated that in reality, Orpherius's wheel was far removed from any such deception. The investigation was conducted in the presence of representatives from the Duke's court and other guests. When the machine was ready to rotate, all adjacent rooms were opened and the bearings were uncovered completely. To prevent anyone inadvertently seeing the internal structure of the machine, he had covered it. Whilst he did this, he did not disguise the fact that the mechanism is moved by weights. Several such weights, wrapped in his handkerchief, he let us hold in our hands to estimate their weight. They were judged to be about four pounds each, and their shape was definitely cylindrical. I conclude, not only from this, but from other circumstantial evidence, that the weights are attached to some movable or elastic arms on the periphery of the wheel. During rotation, one can clearly hear the weights hitting against the wooden boards. I was able to observe these boards through a slit. They are slightly curved. When he put the wheel on another support and reinstalled the weights in their previous positions, he pushed down on an iron spring that gave a loud noise as it expanded upwards. I therefore presume that there is no doubt that the wheel was moved by an internal source of power, but we cannot necessarily assume that it is perpetual. Furthermore, the machine may be of little value to the public unless it can be improved. At the moment, it can lift a weight of 60 pounds, but to achieve this, the pulley had to be reduced more than four times, making the lifting quite slow. Leibniz again declined to pay Orpherius, although this time the price had dropped to only $3,000. After a few months, the temperamental investigator again sank into a deep depression, destroyed his machine, and moved to Castle in the hopes of gaining the patronage of Landgraf Karl of Hesse Castle. As fate would have it, Gottfried Leibniz was soon to die, but not before he wrote a letter of recommendation on behalf of Orpherius to Landgraf Karl. The inventor met with the Landgraf, who confirmed that he would patronize Orpherius on the condition that he could examine the inside of the wheel. Carl paid him $4,000 in order to do this. Though whether Orpherius actually charged the Landgraf or Carl merely paid is unclear. The Landgraf swore to keep the inner workings a secret, although in letters he did reveal that they were simple and that, quote, any carpenter's apprentice could have made them. Orpherius built a new wheel at Weissenstein Castle, which was the largest yet. Twelve feet in diameter and eighteen inches thick, it operated on the same principles, whatever they were, as his earlier ones. This wheel could move in either direction similarly to the one at Merseburg. Almost as soon as it was completed, 
Landgraf Karl put together a commission to investigate it. The investigators included Christian Wolff, Professor Willems Gravesand of Leiden University, architect Johann Emanuel Fischer von Erlach, and the Landgraf himself. After examining the machine in motion, they took an earlier suggestion from Gottfried Leibniz. They had Orpheus deconstruct the wheel, and then they moved it to another room in the castle where it was reassembled, thus negating one of Borlaug's criticisms. Then Karl sealed the room, and made sure that no one entered or disturbed the wheel. The room was reopened after two weeks, and the wheel was still going. The room was resealed, and two weeks later, reopened again, to find the wheel still in motion. Yet again the room was sealed, and this time left for a month. When checked again, the wheel was still in motion. It had run consistently from November 12, 1717, until January 4, 1718. After this, over several years, Orpheus improved upon his wheel, this time coupling the wheel with an Archimedes screw device, similar to the one proposed by Robert Flood in the 1600s. A commission, composed of mainly the same people, was formed to reinvestigate the machine. In 1721, von Erlach described this improved device. At every turn of the wheel can be heard the sound of about eight weights, which fall gently on the side toward which the wheel turns. This wheel turns with astonishing rapidity, making 26 turns in a minute while the, when the axle works unrestricted. Having tied a cord to the axle to turn an Archimedean screw for raising water, the wheel then made 20 turns a minute. This I noted several times by my watch, and I always found the same regularity. I then stopped the wheel with much difficulty, holding on to the circumference with both hands. An attempt to stop it suddenly would raise a man from the ground. Having stopped in this manner, it remained stationary. I commenced the movement very gently to see if it would of itself regain its former rapidity, which I doubted, believing that it only preserved for a long time the impetus of the impulse first communicated. But to my astonishment, I observed that the rapidity of the wheel augmented little by little until it had made two turns, and then it regained its former speed until I observed by my watch that it made the same 26 turns a minute as before when acting freely, and 20 turns when it was attached to the screw to raise water. It was during this test that Landgraf Karl revealed the inside of the wheel to the investigators at the urging of Professor's Gravesand. Upon learning of this, Orpheus once more flipped out and smashed his wheel and scrawled some rude messages in Latin on the wall for good measure. He left Weissenstein Castle, and moved into a house in the city of Bad Karlshofen. But after the investigations at the behest of Landgraf Karl, Professor, Professors Gravesand and von Erlach, had been in contact with Sir Isaac Newton and John de Gaulier at the Royal Society in London, it was recommended that a company be formed to research applications of the wheel device. De Gaulier had such a company put together, a contract was signed by Orpheus, and all seemed good to go. But then Orpheus learned what Carl had done and destroyed his wheel, and the English backed out. In 1722, Christian Wolff wrote to the Russian Tsar, at that time Peter I or Peter the Great, heaping praise on Orpheus's device. The following year a contract was signed, and Orpheus began rebuilding the machine. He had also been granted $10,000 and began writing a book, the Machine and Tracta, 
or treatise on machines. In 1725, an agent was sent to meet with Orpherius and Carl, but while he was making the trip, Peter died. He was succeeded by his wife, Catherine I, and negotiations were entered for her to buy the wheel, but they broke down. In 1711, Orpherius had employed a maid named Anna Mauersbergerin. She assisted him in constructing his devices as well. In 1726, when his wife died, Anna Mauersbergerin assumed that Orpherius was going to marry her. But when Orpherius married another woman instead, she left his service. She later came forward stating that the wheels had been fakes. Her confessions were recorded as follows. Orpherius's maid, Anna Mauersbergerin, born in Drebach near Annaberg in Saxony, and now 38 years of age, stated that she had served him for many years, since 1711, and knew the full facts and circumstances surrounding the Orpherian wheel. It had been turned manually from its very beginnings in Gera, and had never moved by itself, even in places such as Merseburg and Weissenstein, when it had been locked. Orpherius, his wife, his brother Gottfried, and herself, the maid, had taken turns to rotate the machine. He had promised her two groschen for each hour of turning, and she had received nine Reichsthalers on a, as a salary only a few months ago. Gottfried, who had done most of the turning, had received a hundred Reichsthalers. She was made to turn the wheel by night and day, since it was feared that someone might look to see if it was still rotating at night. When the Archimedean screw had been attached to it as well, it became very heavy to turn. The posts had been hollowed out and contained a long thin piece of iron with a barb at the bottom, which according to the statement was attached to the shaft journal. Turning it was carried out from Orpherius's bedroom, which was close to the machine, on a shelf behind the bed. If they would take her to the house and room in Weissenstein, she would be able to show how everything had been arranged. The strip of iron had been forged by the court blacksmith and castle. She, the maid, Gottfried, his brother, Orpherius's wife and daughter, had all been forced to swear a terrible oath, which she kept in the original, drawn up by his own hand and of which copies are attached. When the wheel had to be turned by day and night for eight weeks in Weissenstein, she once complained that she could not carry on like this, particularly as it happened in the winter's cold. He replied that she should not fret and promised to pay her so that she would be content. On being asked how he could have instructed people turning the machine to stop it or start it up again or make it change its direction of rotation when he himself was in another room and in the presence of strangers who had come to see the wheel, she replied that she had recognized his wishes either from his manually starting the wheel or from his coughing, clearing his throat, spitting, or a similar sign. He had initially refused to pay her the outstanding money due to her for turning the wheel, but when she threatened to lodge a formal complaint in Castle and tell all, he finally consented to pay her. After these allegations came to light, the entire sensation around Orpherius's wheels quickly dissipated. Then in 1730, Carl died, and Orpherius was left without a patron. Not much is known about him after he was disgraced by the revelations from his maid. He seems to have invented several more machines, though he abandoned his wheels. On November 30, 1745, Orpherius himself died. He had been contracted to build a windmill in Forstenberg the year before, and he fell from the windmill. It's usually said that he merely fell, but as he had been disgraced, 
Letters reveal that he was in a deep depression while in Forstenberg, and he doesn't seem to have been the most stable fellow anyway. Suicide is also a possibility. Orpherius remains a, con a controversial figure even to this day. Most serious scientists discount not only Orpherius, but the entire field of perpetual motion. Not only do many of the machines not truly work as promised, the very concept violates several physical laws, among them the second, second law of thermodynamics. To be fair, that law wasn't, even, wasn't really even fully discovered until the 1850s, so nobody knew it violated that at the time. But scientists even at the time were undecided on even the plausibility of perpetual motion. There are a handful of people who cling to an insistence that Orpheus's machines did truly work. These people generally claim that the maid's allegations of fraud were part of a conspiracy and that Andreas Gertner and Johann Borlach were behind it. They point out that several times the investigators had checked for connection to the walls and were suspicious of the crank-turning hypothesis already. But even if the maid's story was false, that still doesn't negate any idea of fraud. Pointing out that Orpheus was a watchmaker and his insistence that the inside of the wheel not be viewed, John Finn points out that it might have been some sort of clockwork, one with either a spring concealed in the axle of the wheel, or possibly a weight-driven clock, which seems more likely of the two to me, as the presence of shifting weights inside the wheel was noted. And he points out, clocks have been known to run for up to a year without winding, particularly weight-driven ones, so the 54-day period it continually ran is more than possible. But even after this, people still claim to have invented perpetual motion machines, to this day even. In 2001, British engineer Roger Shawyer proposed a type of engine for utilization in spacecraft. The engine he designed consisted of a hollowed-out flattened cone. If you think of a drinking cup turned on its side, without a bottom, that's pretty close although of course Shawyer's device was far larger, connected to some other machinery. The cone, he proposed, would work as a resonating chamber, with microwaves bouncing around within. This, he said, would generate thrust. Essentially, it would be a fuelless engine. He called this machine the EM drive, and founded the company to continue research into the concept. Almost as soon as it was proposed, other scientists built their own EM drives and began testing with extremely mixed results. Some claimed it worked, some claimed it worked but didn't really generate enough energy to be worth it, while most concurred that it was an impossibility and violated several physical laws, among them the law of the conservation of momentum and Newton's third law, that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. The EM drive, usually termed the impossible drive because of its generally agreed-upon failure to work as advertised, is basically a free energy device. Free energy devices are essentially a more modernized form of perpetual motion, with most all violating physical laws and not really being as feasible as they might appear. It was really very timely that some news stories about still more tests declaring the infeasibility of the EM drive came out recently. At the time, I had just settled on this topic, and it was just a coincidence that stories detailing much the same sort of device with the same problem came out just then. But one I wanted to leave off with is an example of how the maid's allegations and the crank-turning theory of Johann Borlaug is more than plausible, as just such a scheme has worked in the past. 
1812, Charles Redheffer of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a man about whom not much of anything is known outside of the fact that he may or may not have been born in Germantown, began exhibiting a perpetual motion machine. The next year, some city commissioners undertook an investigation of Redheffer's machine. They were made to investigate while looking through a barred window, however, as Redheffer claimed he feared that they might damage the machine. One of the men investigating was a man named Nathan Sellers. His son, Coleman Sellers, pointed out to his father that while Redheffer was claiming the turning wheels of the machine could lift a number of weights continually, remember Orpheus claimed the same, although his wheel didn't need to lift the weight. The gears were worn in such a way which would seem to indicate that the reverse was true and that it was actually the weights powering the wheel. Nathan thought his son's idea had merit and became convinced Red Heifer was a fake. He got a local engineer to construct a similar wheel powered by a hidden clockwork. The machine was then shown to Red Heifer, who examined it and was convinced of its authenticity, confirming fraud to Seller's mind. The final report read in part, The commission did finally take the liberty of declaring that, from the recited conduct of Charles Redheffer, as well as from numerous general attempts to construct self-moving machines on the ostensible principles of his, it is their decided opinion that Charles Redheffer's machine is a deception and himself an imposter. Redheffer protested angrily and finally left Philadelphia and went to New York City. He modified his machine slightly and began exhibiting it there as well. As fate would have it, the exhibition was intended by inventor of the steamboat Robert Fulton, who practically right away realized it was crank-powered. He proclaimed it a fraud and called Redheffer a faker, then said he would expose the machine as a fake or he'd pay for any damages he did. He swiftly tore up the wall around the wheel's axle, where he found a cord running upwards. Going upstairs, he discovered an old man turning a crank, claiming he knew nothing of exactly why he was turning it. The crowd of spectators then turned on Red Heifer, destroyed his machine, and so far as is known, he was never heard from again. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. And so, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.